news for some of you that we are finally wrapping up at least this section of our study of Ephesians. We won't get through the entire book today, but we are going to be moving on. Next week, the singers will be with us and Brother Duffy Guyton from Central Baptist College, who is the uh, Director of Church Relations, will be bringing the morning's message. And then the following week, we'll be taking a break before we go into the Easter, um, our Easter worship services to look at, I think, uh, well, at least for this season of my life, my favorite psalm, Psalm 42. And so I think it'll be nice to take that little bit of a break. While we wrap up today, there's something I do want to keep in mind. And and that is what's going on in Ephesians up to this point. We've spent and invested a lot of our time into this study. We actually began looking at the first portion of Ephesians all the way back in November. And we called that study... The old you. Looking at what Paul describes as the old self that is inside of all of us. The need that we have of a Savior and what's so great about that portion of Scripture, more specifically the first two chapters of the book, as Paul elaborates on the doctrinal components of regeneration and salvation and now this adoption that Christians have in this new life and new walk with God and that we've been grafted into this new body, he actually stresses and emphasizes the old need that man has, actually the sinful condition that is inside of every person. And he brings out and draws out the reality of how big the magnitude of our, 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 our rejection of everything that is God is in us. And it's actually kind of soul-crushing. It's actually a little bit despairing to look at this old self and to say, I am completely wretched. When I really evaluate myself, I have the attitude that Paul has in saying, I am the least of all of the saints. Because when I take a look at myself, I start to realize from the perspective of God, how could anyone do anything worse? I mean, sure, we might say, and and we like to do this, born into all of us is this, we don't like to acknowledge that there's anything wrong with us. In fact, the funny thing about people is oftentimes when we need to apologize, we'll resist it and we make excuses. Well, I'm sorry, but you know this was going on in my life, and so it makes sense that this kind of thing happened. This is what's so great about Paul drawing out our old selves because even Christians, it seems like it only takes a couple of weeks for us to remember that our salvation was a salvation from what? We, we, we neglect the reality that every Christian is just as depraved as everyone else in the world, if not for the new self born inside of us. And this is a a marvelous illustration that Paul gives us. And so we moved on after the Christmas season. We took a break and and we looked at, uh, we went through a Christmas series for four weeks. We came back to Ephesians in January in this continuing where we picked up in chapter 3 in this current study that we've called the new you or our new identity. 
Because our salvation is in the identity that we place in Christ. But Paul doesn't start with our individual identity. He starts looking at our identity as a community of believers. Remember, when Paul was persecuting Christians, traveling on the Damascus Road, when Jesus appeared before him, Jesus did not say, why are you persecuting my people? He said, why are you persecuting me? I think that had great resonance in the life of Paul and certainly in his ministry when he identifies that this body of believers is not just Jesus' people or God's people or the elect or anything like this, but the body of Christ is Christ. That's what this original doctrine that's presented in the first part whenever in chapters 1 and 2 when Paul's starting to describe you've been grafted into the body, you've been adopted, you've been made one in your unity. And so Paul begins elaborating on our new identity with Christ with our identification as Christians, as a member of the body and everything that this is. And over the last couple weeks, we've been building into, all right, not only have we identified with this body, but now there's a new me, there's a new identity inside of myself. And and what does that mean? This is amazing. As we look at it, and we continue looking at this last portion that we'll look at in in this series before we come back to Ephesians to finish out the last two chapters. It's important for us to keep all of this in mind. Because the last few encouragements that we look at seem to be very specific and very targeted, but they are not plucked out of their own space. They, they do not stand by themselves. Let me be a little bit more clear. I feel like I'm speaking abstractly. That's, that's difficult. What we're going to read today, our portion of Scripture that we will study, is a list of commandments that Christians are supposed to obey. They are directives. They are Do this, do this, don't do that. You know what I'm saying? There's a bigger picture. They're not just a list of things that we should do or that we shouldn't do. Our guidebook to the Christian faith is not simply a list of morals that we should keep or that we should uphold, but they are simply a picture that is being painted in a bigger tapestry. There's a thread running through all of this that is bigger than that, and that thread hinges on this identification as a new body. So my prayer this morning is that I would be able to bring that to light and to your understanding But I know that in my human ability to do that, I will fail. So before we read our portion of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 4, let's pray that you would not rely on my human ability to explain what Paul is writing, but rather on the Holy Spirit inside of us to translate this meaning. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning as your people. God, we come to you having... Woken up this morning, prepared ourselves for worship, getting dressed, eating breakfast, getting in our cars and driving here. And Lord, I don't know what all's happened in everyone's life to bring them here, but I do know what's happened in mine. God, I know that in my life there are stresses and burdens and things that I worry about, things that I carry with me, things that I find difficult to set aside. When I lay down on rest, they come to my mind. God, this isn't the time to think of those things. God, for this time, I pray that you would lead me in worship to give me peace to set these things aside, that my focus would only be on you, that I would completely invest myself into your word. Lord, that I would seek your wisdom and your counsel and understanding. 
God, I pray that you would reveal to me the awesome truth found in your law. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. Turn with me then and read from Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 25 all the way to the first verse of the fifth chapter. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those of you who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering for the sacrifice to God. I should have said that my intention this morning is to move rather quickly through the list of commandments that Paul has given us here and to spend the majority of our time focused on what is this underlying thread that kind of holds this tapestry together. Quickly then, let's take a look at the commandments that we find. Paul says, let their put away falsehood also known as, do not lie. He says, be angry and do not sin. Also known as, do not allow your anger to become sin. He says, let the thief no longer steal. A.K.A., do not steal. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Do not participate in careless speech. Avoid these six sins of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. Oh, the commandments are pretty simple. Do not lie. Do not be angry in a sinful way. Do not steal. Do not participate in careless speech and avoid the sins of bitterness. We could stop right there this morning and you would understand from a, from a surface level what Christians need to do. Do not do these things. That doesn't paint. It doesn't draw us deeper into our relationship with God. It doesn't help us to worship God. The application of this is so simple, I could turn around and if I'm lying, I could say, be honest. If I was um, an angry person and I was filled with rage, I could um, say, okay, I need to put this anger aside for me. If I was obsessed with stealing things, I could simply stop stealing. If I was... It, uh, had careless speech, well, I could take the advice of some parents and I could just put duct tape over my lips. It doesn't help you very much, does it? Because we realize all of these issues, they don't come from a, a place that I actually make the decision or think that they're right. Even the unsaved and the unregenerate, for the most part, would agree that lying is morally wrong, that stealing is wrong, that rage and malice is wrong, that careless speech is wrong. 
Deep down inside of me, God created me with multiple parts. And this is an amazing part of my composition and how God has formed me. Inside of me, he has given me a will. Inside of me, he's given me a mind. And these things might say, you know, inside of me that lying is wrong, but he's also given me a flesh. Oh, in this part of me, whenever it acts out, there's, there's disintegration between these different forms of me when my will says that lying is wrong, but I still lie in my mind. I even said that the reason Christians forget that there's an old self that we need to focus on, the reason Paul spends so much time emphasizing the old you in chapters 1 and 2 of this epistle is because we need to be reminded of our old self. Because I forget about it. Oh, I know it inside of my soul because my soul has been corrupted. I feel the consequences of sin in my life. I even feel the distance of God in my life as a consequence of my sin. But in my mind, I don't tell myself the truth. That's what John means in 1 John when he writes about writing, living in darkness, that Christians have the ability not only to deceive others around them, but eventually to deceive themselves, that they can't even diagnose their own spiritual condition. Maybe we would understand these things better as not commandments that we are to follow, but rather this picture that I'm trying to draw out that Paul is trying to draw out in writing this entire letter. Look at the motivations. We don't lie because we're members of one body. How can we lie to ourselves? If there's unity amongst us, how can we lie to ourselves? The reason we don't allow our anger to, to um, become sin is to not give opportunity to the devil. This is practical advice. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Because you know what happens when you're a coward and you, you refuse to go to somebody you have an issue with. You refuse to go to in, in your marriages, in your relationships at work. And when in your cowardice you ref, refuse to face conflict, you go home and it turns into resentment. And soon enough, you're having a conversation with somebody and you don't even know why you're mad at them anymore. All you know is that you are angry with them and there's no opportunity for that conflict to happen because it's, it's not even angry, anger at the situation. Now it's just resentment. Oh, and it destroys marriages. Because I'm tired and I'm fatigued and I don't want to have this conflict. I just want to go to bed. And now you have resentment. It, it ruins friendships. I haven't talked to so-and-so in two weeks. Why should I reach out to and talk to them now? Before you know it, it's two years have gone by and somebody says, hey, do you want to go to so-and-so's? This is happening in their life. I don't even know why, but I don't like that person. I don't want to. Our flesh and our sinful condition is a coward. It takes real strength to be able to be angry with a righteous indignation of Christ and to not allow that to turn to sin. The practical advice Paul gives us is to not let it stew, but to put it to bed. 
Because as soon as that anger turns to resentment, it's no longer righteous indignation, but now it's sin in our own life, corrupting our own soul, corrupting our own walk with God. The reason we're not to steal is because we're supposed to contribute to the needs of others. This is interesting. The thief steals so that he can meet his own personal needs. The Christian works so that he can meet the needs of others. Likewise, the same need to build up is the reason that we're not supposed to participate in careless speech. Careless speech, after all, tears people down but Paul writes, you're supposed to speak with words that build up, that edify, that, that construct and make more complete or make completely furnished. More so not to grieve the Holy Spirit within us. And this is an interesting thing about God. God can be grieved even in our salvation. Whenever we speak carelessly, there's a conscience inside of us that's convicting us of these things. Have I helped you yet to see the bigger picture? I don't think I have. All we've done is looked at the commandments that Paul's given us. Do not lie. Do not allow your anger to be sinned. Do not steal. Do not use careless speech. Avoid the sins of bitterness. Why? Because you're supposed to be one body. You're not supposed to give the devil opportunity because you need to build up, because you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Finally, because you need to be an imitator of God. There's also positive commands at the end of this. So that's not the list of the commandments. If we look at what's this guiding buzz that Paul's giving us, what's the... the the things that we're supposed to do, not just the things that we're supposed to avoid. He says, be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving. And I love the word forgiving because it's actually, when you look in the Greek, it's the same word that we get for grace. So it's the same word that Paul's writing when he says that you've been saved by grace, by God's grace, and nothing but his grace. To forgive somebody means to be grace-filled, to give them unmerited favor. And, and he draws it out perfectly when he says, the reason you should forgive people as God forgave you. Your grace should be so abundant that it is a measure of how much God has forgiven you. Be kind, be compassionate, be grace-filled. These positive commands start to pull together that there's a relationship between what we're supposed to be doing in God and what we're not supposed to be doing in the fellowship of the believers. So we start to tug on this tapestry a little bit. We start to pull this picture apart so that we can see what's holding it all together. And we are reminded all the way back at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All of this starts to point back to the unity that is inside of the body, our personal relationship with Christ. Our identity as a group of believers. In fact, our failing to keep these commandments, these imperatives, this list of things that we shouldn't do, this list of things that we should do, all points to a failure to completely identify with our Savior. A failure to maintain the unity of the Spirit. 
No wonder we should be eager to keep it. We should be anxious to keep it. Why we should have so much drive and motivation to seek reconciliation amongst ourselves. Because this is essential to our Christian living. Because when there's disunity amongst us, because we are using reckless words or um, um, uh, not blasphemous words. Um, Actually, interesting note, the Greek word for, for blasphemy is also the word that we get our English word for slander. So, um, slanderous words. The, the reason that all of these things tear down is because they tear apart the unity that's inside of the body. What's so scary about that isn't just the way that it affects the church, but the way that it affects the individual Remember, Jesus said to Paul, why do you crucify me? Not why do you crucify my people? A church that, that is, is not being held together in this unity or a group of believers. Uh, and actually, you know what? That's fair to the context because we're not just talking about the local assembly. We're talking about the body of Christ, the invisible body of Christ across all regions of the earth. A group of Christians that are not grace-filled in their speak, speech, compassionate and kind, is tearing apart this unity. There is no eagerness to maintain this unity. That's what's so sad about it. And somebody in the congregation says, that's why I don't like church. And to the person that says that, I say this, you are a part of the problem. How can you say you don't like church because it's like that? It's filled with people who are, who are trying to overcome sin. It's filled with people who are on the road to being sanctified and complete in Christ. I'm not saying that there aren't problems with sinners in the church. What I am saying is that's why they're the church. To the person who says the reason I hate the church is because of all of this. They need to be reminded, and I pray you are reminded this morning. You are called to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. This tapestry, the body of Christ, is something bigger than just getting along. It has to do with the way that we are identified with Christ. And by the way, just so we're clear, there is no salvation without our identity in Christ. I do not want God to see Derek. I want God to see the blood of my Savior that covers everything that I am, that changes all that I am. As a matter of fact, that redefines who I am because I am new in Christ. Christ. We are forgiven and we are to forgive. We need to be honest with those around us. We need to be forgiving. We need to be contributing. We need to be building up with our words so that we can be imitators of Christ. The reason we move with such urgency around these things is, well, just as our reason to forgive is based on God forgiving us. Our reason to move with urgency, or as Paul writes, do not let the sun go down on your anger, 
is a picture of the urgency that God moves towards us in reconciling our relationship to Him. The Bible is not a group of letters or stories pulled out of different... It's one big story being held together by this awesome, awesome message of grace that God has given us. And when we start putting this together and we see that God created us in the garden with the intention of being with us. I think about this. God has no body except for Christ. But in the garden, Adam and Eve walked with God. Well, this is the same thing Paul mentions in Ephesians chapter 2, isn't it? I'm, I'm Ephesians 5 verse 2, when he says, in our walk with God. How do you walk with God who has no body? Moreover, we, the Bible tells us something of God's nature. He says that he's all present. How do you walk with somebody who's everywhere? And what, what happened whenever Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? But they hid from him. And God calls out, where are you? And of course, he already knows where they're at. But he calls out, where are you? Because he knows that they're hiding. This is the same thing Christians do today. Whenever we refuse to identify with our Savior in the way that he's called us to identify with him, we hide from him. And he calls out, where are you? Ever since that time of fall, God has been pursuing man. In the corruption of sin, man is unable to reach out and to save himself. In our death, we are not even able to say, I need a Savior. In our blindness, we are unable to see how deep our need of a Savior is. In fact, if you are unsaved, you can't even comprehend the depravity that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's only through the lens of salvation that I can truly see how desperate I am in need of a Savior. And in all of this, the marvelous thing is that God is reaching out to us, pursuing us. In all of the Bible, in all of Israel's history, in the revelation of the New Testament, in the covenant established through Jesus' blood, it is God who is pursuing man, reaching out and asking him to come back to him. It's God who starts the process of salvation, implanting the burden to know God in man's heart, softening his heart to be able to admit, wait a second, all of the sin and depravity, that's me. This is the work of the Holy Spirit already beginning to act in our lives. Shouldn't we be eager to do the same thing with each other? To pursue forgiveness that it wouldn't turn into resentment. I said that this tapestry has to do with our relationship to Christ. It has to do with our relationship to the body too. The Spirit inside of us, the Spirit of God that indwells every believer is the same Spirit. It's not a portion, it's the whole. It's not fragmented, it's complete. How then can there be disunity? How can there be strife and malice and all of these other things? How can a thief steal? 
we begin to see how necessary it is that we identify with this body, not just in contributing to her, but in building her up and caring for her and covering the weak parts of the body and in, in strengthening those who need strengthened. When we start to see the church in this light, when we start to see the church in this picture of this great thing that God has established, and I love what, is, what Paul writes in, in chapter 3, verse 10, that the church is actually the manifold wisdom of God being revealed. That is incredible. And if I haven't emphasized that through this study, I'm ashamed. When we start to see what God has established, not just in our identity with Christ, but in our identity with the body, it moves within me that I would ask, what is the one thing that I could do for my church that I could, that I could, what's the greatest thing that I could do to help the church? And every Christian should ask the same question. What is the greatest thing that I could do to help the church? When I think about that, what could I possibly do? Notice the way that Paul moves through this letter. The beginning of chapter 4 starts with this picture of maintaining the unity in the body. Then he begins to elaborate on what it means to be an individual Christian, how these spiritual gifts should work out of us in order to serve the body of Christ. And then moving on beyond that, how we are supposed to celebrate this new life, setting apart the old parts of us, no longer walking as Gentiles do, therefore having put away falsehood so that we can do all of these commandments. And I realize the greatest thing that I can do for the church is that I could surrender myself. To the contentment. And the joy. And the peace of God. Somebody pause and don't move past that too quickly, please. Because we might say, well, Brother Derek, you're a pastor. You should do quite a bit more for the church. Perhaps you should prepare diligently. Perhaps you should study diligently. Perhaps you should um, serve and labor tirelessly. The greatest contribution of any Christian and all Christians to the church is their personal contentment, their personal peace, and their personal joy in God. The real picture of revival doesn't start with great outreaches. The real revival doesn't start with large crowds and assemblies. Real revival starts in the quiet, dark rooms of individual homes whenever we surrender ourselves to the presence of God, when we allow ourselves to actually submit to everything that He is and surrender everything that we are so that we can fully identify with Him. I mentioned these different components of how God has comprised us, that I have a will inside of me that desires to do things. I have an emotional part of me that sometimes takes control and runs my life. I have a flesh inside of me that has desires all of its own. And then outside of that, I have this thing called a soul. What is that? And I pointed out that it's possible for these things not to live in agreement. 
You know what the soul is? It's not just the part of us that lives on after we die because I've got a secret for you. My body's going to live on too. The soul is the part of us that seeks unity amongst all of our different parts. When my flesh acts out in contradiction to my will, that disintegration between myself is conflict. My soul becomes tired and weak and it's fragile and it needs to be cared for. The reason these commandments are so important isn't just so that we can obey them and be pleasing to God, but it is so that my soul can be cared for so that I can cry out to God and have a relationship with Him in those quiet moments, so that I can be a real contributing member of a church, so that I can be filled in everything that He is. The greatest promise of the Bible is that through the gospel, God promises all people freedom. Through the gospel, you are promised to be made free. Free from what? Free from the bondage of sin. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians, isn't it? Free from the bondage and the chains of this world. Through the gospel, through accepting Christ, you are made free in that. But here we find even more commandments. Do not lie, do not steal, all of these different things. We say that we live in a free country, but guess what? If I drive down Highway 10 going 60 miles an hour, I will probably get stopped. And if my response to the officer is, Officer, I feel like it's more true to myself to go fast. That probably won't get me very far. Well, guess what? The law of God is very similar. Did you know that the Israelites and the Jewish people, we call it the Ten Commandments, what was given to Israel at Mount Sinai. Do you know what the Jewish people call it? Translated from Hebrew, a better translation would actually be the Ten Utterances, the Ten Sayings. Because remember, the Israelite people, and this is a shadow of our deliverance from sin, they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. They were delivered. What did God say to them first? I am the Lord thy God who delivered you from slavery in Egypt. Here's your new slavery. These are the Ten Commandments or the Ten Utterances that you need to keep. No. We don't view the commandments as God as more rules or more bondage. These things are actually the guideposts that keep us moving towards God in our life. Not just in our obedience to keep them, but in our protection from ourselves. The commandments that we find in God are not restrictive. See, there's two ways to think of our freedom. There's freedom from something, and then there's freedom for something. Right? In the law of God, we are free to be who we were designed to be. This picture of the garden being born in perfect unity and fellowship with God, being able to walk with Him. That's the desire that, that we have when we draw near to God or we ask to come near to God, that there would be integration, 
between my values and my will, my mind and my emotions, and my flesh, that they would live in harmony in such a way that they agree with each other, that there's not conflict. Because in that, I actually get to know not who God is making me or forcing me to be, but I get to be the person that God actually designed me to be. And in that, my communion and my fellowship with the Lord God Almighty who created the heavens and the earth is more pure and more genuine because there's no falseness in it. My communion and my fellowship with God's people when we gather in church is more pure and more holy because there is no falseness or deception in it. Be content. Be tender-hearted. Forgive as God forgives you. Billy Graham's wife, when she passed away, had decided what would be written on her tombstone. She figured it out while driving through heavy construction wherever they were living at the time. When she got to the end, the construction sign said, End of construction. Thanks for your patience. In our unity as a church, every member is still being constructed, still being edified. Our sanctification is progressive in this life until we reach the end. But the promise of the gospel is at the end of that is our final glorification. The redemption of every wickedness inside of us as we are made incorrupted and complete in the form that God originally designed and intended us to be. The promise of the Christian walk is that we could get there or closer to it. Christian disciplines and everything that we ascribe to ourselves and our growth and our desire to grow in spiritual maturity points us towards being who God made us to be in the first place. I look forward to the day that it is made complete. When my construction has finished. And I thank you all for your patience. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the way that it speaks to us and the way that it guides us. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that you would help us to know how to worship you and to call out to you. God, that you would create integration between all of the parts of us, the parts that we can see, the parts that we can't see, but that our worship of you would be true. Lord, like the song that we just sing and the psalmist who wrote it originally, search us and know our heart. Reveal to us if there's any wicked way in us that we would be able to draw near to you more holy. In Jesus' heavenly name we pray. Amen. We're going to take this moment to sing a song. Hopefully your hearts are filled with praise, being reminded of everything that God has done through you in salvation. And in singing this, I pray that the Holy Spirit would move to reveal to you how you are to respond. Um, As as we do this, um, realize that this is an opportunity for the preacher to shut his mouth. 
Because it doesn't come from man, the wisdom of God. It comes from the Spirit. And as the Spirit moves in your heart and that conviction comes from you, you'll know how to respond. Whether that's where you're at or you want to come to the altar and you want to pray or you want somebody to pray with you and you want to come here. I pray that we would only be obedient to the way that God leads us. Number 330. Thank you.